Well, hello and welcome to the Broken Wharf podcast. This is John Mark, your host, and I'm not joined by my co-host Johnny Woodrow, but that's because I'm here to introduce a short snippet of one of our coffee house sessions that we recorded uh, very recently with Jason Montgomery, a pastor in Fort Worth, Texas. We asked questions about how tradition, the idea of tradition, aligns with a Reformed Baptist understanding of sola scriptura, a Protestant view of the scriptures. And I hope that you'll enjoy tuning in to this 30-minute segment of one of our Coffee House sessions. Define for us the, or, or at least begin to define for us the relationship between scripture and tradition in our, I, I might say, in, in our understanding, in our confession of faith. Is it as simple as saying, well, we have no tradition outside of the traditional interpretation of the Holy Scriptures? Or is there something more to be said? Is there more clarification needed? J- just begin to to introduce that subject to mm. some of the listeners and try to define that for us. Yeah, uh, you're just talking about the broad doctrinal discussion of the relationship of Scripture to tradition itself. And um, I I suppose, again, since we're talking about not, not, uh, not clogging religion with new words, uh, we'll use a kind of a, gosh, can I say, a traditional way of explaining the relationship of scripture and tradition. Um, uh, you can you can find um, explanations of this in places like uh, Alistair McGrath's Historical Theology, or um, probably even a better place would be uh, Heiko Oberman, uh, The Harvest of Medieval Theology, uh, but others have done it. Muller, Muller talks about it in his uh, Dictionary of Latin and Greek uh, Terms. Uh, you can find it there. And uh, they'll talk about what's, they break it down into scripture or tradition, tradition zero, tradition one, and tradition two, all right? Uh, tradition zero basically is arguing that um, we, don't, we don't want tradition, period. All we want is the Bible. We just want scripture, all right? We're going to read the Bible ourselves, and we're going to come to our own conclusions by interpreting the scripture. And in a, in a real raw sense, this is kind of sometimes uh, bantered about as the, the more biblicist approach. Uh, we just want the Bible. and uh, Or you'll hear it in uh, American uh, history, American Christianity from the 19th century. There's no creed but the Bible, all right? We don't want to deal with creeds. Don't want to do with confessions because those things are more the traditions of men. We just want the Bible, so that's tradition zero. Uh, tradition, tradition one, is more the idea of the historic church, and it would be more the uh, the view that I would espouse is that um, there is one uh, supreme means by which God has revealed Himself to the church. And um, now we speak of general revelation and special revelation, uh, but we think of the final conscience binding authority of Scripture. And this is in the opening, uh, the opening line of our uh, 
our own confession, uh, where it says there in chapter one on the scripture, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That goes on to talk about the light of nature. Um, chapter uh, 20, uh, I think it's 22, uh, formulates some statements about God. Uh, so, for example, talks about in paragraph one of chapter 22, the light of nature shows there is a God. He has lordship and sovereignty over all. He's just and good and does good to all. And these are theological statements about God that are drawn from the light of nature. So this is kind of a, a formulation of natural theology. And so our own tradition does not reject the light of nature. It doesn't reject natural theology. We can learn things about God from creation. We do have the law of God written on our heart. We have a moral compass, if you will. Yes, the conscience is defiled, but it's still present. It's still there. And But we don't use the light of nature or natural theology as our ultimate uh, conscience-binding document. For that, we use Scripture, uh, being the only infallible, certain, uh, and sufficient rule of saving knowledge, faith, and practice. So uh, Tradition Zero acknowledges that there are uh, there are there are there are teachers. There are um, summaries of the Christian faith and church history. There are the creeds. There are creedal statements or definitions. Uh, we speak of uh, uh, you know the, the Nicene Creed from 325. We speak of the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed from 381. Uh, we speak of the conclusions of the Council of Ephesus and then the definition of Chalcedon in 451. Um, we speak of things like the Athanasian Creed. Um, and then we have, you know, a, a plethora of uh, confessions throughout the history of the church that we draw from and we're taught by, but all of them are subservient to, uh, we'll use the phrase for our confession, it is a subordinate standard to scripture, scripture having the ultimate authority. Um, that's tradition one. But then tradition two is more it's it's found more in rome all right the idea that that yes uh there is uh the revelation of god scripture and there is also this second line of revelation that comes through a church tradition and these become two parallel lines if you will or two sources of revelation for the church and they are both then made subservient to uh, the teaching authority in the Catholic Church, being the magisterium, the bishops and the cardinals headed up by the Pope. And none are free to interpret the Bible or tradition by themselves. Um, the magisterium has to give that, uh, uh, that, that, that authoritative interpretation. And uh, this would be uh, tradition two. So two streams of revelation, and uh, some some have uh, posited the idea of maybe even thinking in terms of the magisterium itself as like a tradition three, where the magisterium itself becomes a vehicle through which God reveals His will to the church. Uh, it takes scripture, it takes tradition. And it becomes like the ultimate authority. The ultimate conscience-binding authority then in Rome would be the magisterium. Uh, because even scripture and tradition both have to be interpreted 
and that can't be done outside the magisterium. So the magisterium itself becomes like a third means by which, and an ultimate means by which, uh, revelation comes to bear on on the on the church, if you will, in the Catholic tradition. So I don't know if that zero, one, and two thing helps a little bit, but no, it, that, it seems to clear me a little bit. That very much so, and it, it gives us uh, a good. In, in laying out the differences, it, it helps us compare and, and better understand uh, each stance, each point. Uh, and it's useful for people to hear that language of subordinate standard, because subordinate mm-hmm. standard acknowledges that it is a standard. It's something that believers in the past have stood behind and said, this is what the scriptures teach. But it's subordinate in that it is only strong insofar as it is in line with what the scriptures teach uh, and yes, so yes. laying it out like that means that we don't we don't have uh, paper popes uh, as some people like to uh, accuse us of having <laughs> i don't mean to laugh i just i've never heard that one a paper pope. and uh, um, yeah yeah well of, of course people accuse us of having paper popes but the irony is so often they they just have person popes um and yeah, there, there are lots of dangers there, but th- thank you for laying that out for us. So how would you just uh, – one one final question I've, I've got for you here, Jason. How would you defend the uh, use of confessions uh, and creeds and that, that whole creedal heritage that we've been speaking about? You mentioned the, the four uh, ecumenical creeds. You've been speaking about the patristics, and I hope that – people who've been listening have seen their value and why, why we should read them. Yeah. Uh, d- defend the, this uh, use of them within uh, what, you, what you've called tradition one. Why? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why is that found in the scriptures? If, if you can put it that way. Well, so I suppose a couple things. One, one we could back up. We could just ask the question: Who's asking this question? Well, I know you're asking the question here, but you're you're trying to kind of uh, almost embody the person that's out there that says we shouldn't have creeds, we shouldn't have confessions. Uh, defend your case, you know, or, or whatever. All right. Um, well, my 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 immediate response would be. Um, how to say this, um, defending creeds and confessions in that kind of a conversation is like, it's like a pointless endeavor because the person asking the question is assuming they don't have a creed. They don't have a confession. Hmm. They're assuming all they have is the Bible. All right. So I'm a guy and I come up to you and I say, look, I've got the Bible. You've got creeds and confessions. Tell me why I should listen to you and your creeds and confessions while I have the Bible. Well, we would both agree that the Bible is the ultimate authority, but this guy asking this question is assuming he doesn't have a creed or a confession. And that's a false assumption because everybody has a creed. Everybody has a confession. If if somebody comes to me and says they don't have creeds, they don't have confessions. They don't have a tradition, all right? Uh, it, it doesn't take long to talk to a person to realize you've got a creed. Your, your declaration, no creed but the Bible, is a what? 
It's a creed. A creed, yeah. You know, I, I remember being in seminary back in the in the nineties, and I'm I'm that old, and I had my professor of a class. He sat there and said, "Well, it's not my job and my desire to indoctrinate you in this class. I'm not going to be pushing doctrine on you in this class because I believe that you should be able to formulate your own doctrinal positions on your own." And I'm thinking, that's that's a doctrinal position. His non-indoctrinal position is a doctrinal position. <laughs> you know, it's like the guy that's coming and yelling at you and telling you, you should be tolerant. You should be tolerant of me. You should tolerate everybody. Well, you're not tolerating my intolerance. So you're not you're not really being tolerant, are you? You'll tolerate everybody unless they're intolerant. So you're not really tolerating everybody. So uh, there's a lot of kind of false baggage or fall, un, unassumed baggage, unaware baggage in that kind of a statement. But um, <clears throat> if we were just to come you know, from a different angle, we could say, does the Bible itself encourage and teach a creedal confessional position? Does it encourage us uh, to formulate our faith in doctrinal expression. And I think absolutely it does. Uh, all throughout the Bible, the Bible is filled with doctrinal statements, doctrinal formulations. Uh, if we go back and root it, for example, in the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All right? Um, that is a doctrinal formulation that serves as the foundation for the whole Judaic enterprise. I mean, that that the, the, the whole Judaic faith, if you will, is founded upon the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, the oneness of God. And then when we come into the New Testament, um, we find that Paul, as a good Jew, um, says, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, he says this, um, there is no God but one. Where does he get that? Did he just like close his eyes one day and, and just like think and hum <laughs> and hope a thought would come? Oh, there's no God but one. No, he's a Jew. He's getting that straight from the Shema. And then he comes and makes this amazing statement. He says in verse six, yet for us, I'm sorry, that was verse four. But in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he says, For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And then he makes this amazing statement, And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. He makes a parallel statement about the Son that he's just made about the Father. And, you know, we had time to unpack all this or whatever. We would see that what, what Paul is saying is they are one. And the things we say here about them, the Father, the Son, and by extension, as we go throughout the scripture, uh, the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and the early church sees this and develops this early Trinitarian expression to the rule of faith. And it, and it seems, sorry, no, no, it, it, it seems that uh, as you show us from, from the scriptures, Paul had a creed and he is indoctrinating us, um, wh whether we like Absolutely. it or not, in indoctrinating. Um, he's he's doing that unapologetically 
Mm. He's doing that because he thinks that's necessary. And, uh, and, it, and it carries on in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, uh, the formulation of confessional creedal type statements. And then in the early church, you see in the second century, third and fourth century, they come back to these kinds of texts as an argument for why they should be saying what they're saying, why they should have this Trinitarian faith. And um, there's this uh, great statement, again, to kind of draw from Irenaeus. I guess I have Irenaeus on the mind these days. Um, and he comes out in, uh, in chapter 6 of his work, and he's, he's, he's talking about what the early church referred to often as the rule of faith. Um, and there's a great little book I came across recently on the rule of faith in the early church by Everett Ferguson. You'll probably remember that name from the patristic class. Uh, Ferguson is the guy that wrote the, uh, the book that we used for patristics and for medieval. And it's an excellent book, but um, he writes a little book. It's just called the rule of faith. And um, the uh, it's a, it's very helpful. Um, he says, and this is the order of our faith, the foundation of the edifice and the support of our conduct. So it's the foundation of our faith, what we believe, and it's also the support of our conduct, what we do, doctrine and discipline, what we believe and how we behave. And where does he go? What's the foundation of our faith and of our behavior? God, the Father, uncreated, uncontainable, invisible, one God, the creator of all. This is the first article of our faith. And the second article, the word of God, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who was revealed by the prophets. And skipping ahead, he says, and the third article, the Holy Spirit, through whom the prophets prophesied and the patriarchs learned the things of God. In other words, the foundation of our faith is a confession of the Trinity, mm -hmm. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he draws all of that out of the Bible. And he formulates that because he sees that very thing happening in the Bible itself. And um, so someone who comes along and wants to declare, we don't hold to creeds, we don't hold to confessions, we just hold to the Bible alone, obviously hasn't really paid attention when they read the Bible. Mm. Because the Bible itself leads to this kind of doctrinal formulation. No, th thank you so much for, for laying that out for us. It's uh, actually an encouragement to hear, hear you speak uh, so clearly on the issue. And it shows us the dangers of simply coming to the scriptures with a misapprehension uh, of, you know, our own lack of, if I can put it, presuppositions or biases. We We all come to the scriptures with something and that determines what we get out of the scriptures and when we approach the scriptures thinking oh you know i have no creed but christ no confession but the word of god then we, we just read that out of the scriptures which uh, actually it it blocks our view it it stops yeah. us from seeing uh, how uh, as you say the doctrine of the trinity that comes out of the word it it reminded me when when you read Irenaeus there of our confession chapter 2 paragraph 3 the doctrine of the trinity is the foundation of all our comfortable dependence on, on God yeah. How, yeah. how wonderful yeah. and our, commun our communion with him is dependent upon that and so you know it's interesting when you said John Mark when you said uh, I have no creed but Christ 
I mean, just think about that phrase, no creed but Christ. Who, who is Christ? Hmm. I mean, when you say Christ, do you do you think that Christ is somehow the last name of Jesus or even the name of Jesus? Christ isn't technically a name. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title as the Messiah, as the promised deliverer. I mean, in that word Christ, if you really unpack that word, there's a whole confession of historic Christianity, creedalism, confessionalism, in their trust in the person of the Lord Jesus, who is the Christ. When Paul would go into the synagogues, what did he do? He, he, he reasoned from the scripture to demonstrate that Jesus, the man Jesus, was the Christ, the long-anticipated, the ever-awaited-for Messiah is, in fact, Jesus. Or you think of the, the little woman at the well. I know that, that when Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. And then Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. I mean, that's that's creedalism. That's confessionalism. He's wanting her to adopt a particular creed or confession about who he is. And then she goes back and gives testimony to that. And then they come from the village and they believe in him. And uh, even in that little statement, no creed but Christ, it's it's expansive when you really begin to unpack who Christ is. So. Uh, and and just bringing the, the conversation full circle, what what that does is the no, the no creed but Christ statement is it undermines us accessing a, a great historical biblical understanding of Christ because if you want to a good starting place it's far more than a, a starting place but a, a good place to go for a solid biblical understanding of Christ well go to Chalcedon it's mm. 1600 years old now but it still stands as one of our foundational creeds uh, and that's the value of yep. the patristics right there yes yeah very much very much it's good well thank you for tuning in to this small segment of our coffee house sessions you can find us online at brokenwharf.com thanks again and bye for now